Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Justin Sherman of the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative, who is also a Wired Magazine contributor and joins us regularly, along with his council colleagues, uh, Pat Mitchell and Liv Rowley, as well as Nima Aga, Gabrielle Young, and Tian Ju uh, Zuo, and I hope I pronounced all those names correctly, are the authors of a new report, Security in the Billions Toward a Multinational Strategy to Better Secure the IoT or Internet of Things Ecosystem. Justin, always great to have you on, and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, indeed, always a pleasure. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security, as I mentioned, sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Uh, Justin, uh, you've been uh, kind enough to join us, and in including discussing some of the challenges of uh, this increasingly uh, Internet of Things world that we're looking to certainly, um, you know, a, a dramatic uh, capability, but also uh, illustrate some glaring vulnerabilities, which any adversary is is sure to exploit, right? And the more open the society, potentially more uh, significant the challenges. Uh, and you've joined us to discuss ransomware, hacking, uh, solar winds, uh, you 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 name it. Um, so much so, actually, that there are some who are envisioning how they do become less uh, connected. At AFA, for example, uh, had a couple of conversations where folks were sort of making the case, you know, I want to minimize my vulnerabilities and, and minimize my exposure. The case you guys are making is that this is a systemic risk, a, a, an exponential benefit, but a systemic risk. And so we need a global regulatory approach. What are some of the key findings you guys came up with? Uh, in the process of this report, which has been going on for some time, actually. Right. Yeah. I mean, as, as you just got at, right, these devices are everywhere. Um, you know, not everyone has the, uh, you know, apocryphal smart toaster that lights on fire and, and burns the house down or whatever. But lots of people have Apple Watches. Lots of people have Fitbits. Lots of people have a Google uh, Nest speaker or, you know, a smart security system where they can look at their front door camera uh, or, or whatnot from their phone. And so we have this real explosion in these IoT devices um, around the world. At the same time, it's a familiar cybersecurity story where there are plenty of folks who from day one, and especially now, have done a lot of great cybersecurity work. At the same time, uh, IoT security is a disaster, uh, essentially. And so, um, right. you know, you have devices going from the manufacturing line to the shelf at the store or the Amazon warehouse into people's homes. And these devices have weak encryption or they have uh, poor software update mechanisms. Uh, and in many cases, it's things as basic as using the same default universal password on you know, 500,000 of the same IoT devices such that a hacker, um, you know, can basically just open the front door and walk right in. So given that problem space, what we did was say, okay, let's take a look at first and foremost, what's already out there. Right. Uh, we looked at uh, government efforts in the US, the UK, Singapore, and, uh, and Australia. Uh, we looked at 
industry efforts, both in industry coalitions and in specific companies. Um, and so did that first phase to assess what is the landscape and talk to a lot of the folks doing the really important work on those issues. But then the second piece was saying, okay, given this international landscape, given the fact that this device has this part from country A, it's assembled in country B, then it's sold in 26 others, where are the international gaps? How do these different security approaches intersect? And then what do we need to do uh, to address them? And so what we came away with was uh, you know, that a lot of the great work that's been happening should continue as such, but we really need more government coordination to set up that multinational approach to IoT security. And, and, and you know, you guys uh, looked at a whole series of case studies, right, uh, to inform your recommendations, and we'll get to the nine recommendations in a minute. But what were some of the case studies and what were some of the most, um, you know, illuminating findings? We looked at uh, a bunch of different approaches that are occurring across those four countries we mentioned. In Singapore, for example, the government has already set up a labeling scheme for cybersecurity, um, you know, which is something people have talked about for a long time. Uh, but they actually set up a multi-tiered system where uh, basically companies that produce devices, including IoT devices, can get those uh, certified to particular levels of security. It's a way for the regulator to understand how good is, is the protection on the smart speaker, how safe is this Fitbit. It's also a way, in their view, to start to make consumers more able to make those decisions themselves because you actually have that label and that baseline to compare to when you're on whatever website you're on buying your smart product. So. Um, that was a really interesting approach. We also looked at a set of standards um, from Etsy, the European Standards Organization, around IoT security that have actually been replicated in a bunch of other countries. Um, Australia's IoT security stuff, for example, is basically just copied and pasted from a lot of what the UK uh, is doing. And so there's already some um, you know, precedent setting or, or you know, good models, so to speak, that people uh, are looking to. And so, um, you know, what we took away from that is, one, there's a growing focus on labeling and on certification, on, again, making sure the regulator can see, is everyone really making these products secure? And then consumers being able to make better decisions, hopefully, by making that information available and making it more accessible. Um, and the second thing we observed is a, a much greater shift from you know, another classic cybersecurity story, right? Governments being pretty hands-off vis-a-vis security, moving towards being more hands-on, not just putting out standards and posting them on a website and saying, hey, it'd be nice if somebody did this, but actually moving to require a baseline of security. So you go to companies and say things like, hey, we don't need you to do everything right now, but don't do a default password because that's a really... A terrible security decision. So um, it's it's there's a lot of takeaways, but those at least were two were two big ones for me as we worked on this this months long project. Um, and and when it comes to the recommendations, right? I mean, uh, there there are nine of them, but walk us through because you guys are taking again, it's a systemic problem, and you guys are actually trying to establish some global 
regulatory framework uh, for this. Walk us through uh, the recommendations uh, and and how they get us to a better future. Because you know, I mean, uh, you know, this this is a little bit akin, right? When you were talking about labeling, I was thinking about the Biden administration's both software and hardware bill of origin and materials, right? Get a sense on what's in uh, the systems. Have have folks. Uh, self-report that way for example you you don't you know have corrupted software or corrupted hardware uh in in the system walk us through sort of the broad uh, recommendations and and where ideally they get us yeah and that's a really great point again you know nobody's pretending that this stuff is new there have been tons of folks who uh, you know i'm sure many listeners know personally as well have been doing great work on on sbom uh, stuff and, and others for years um you know, our recommendations really were were uh, uh, in a couple buckets. One is to set up that mandatory minimum baseline of security product uh, standards for the Internet of Things. So, you know, yes, there's other stuff we'd like done, but right now, where is the low hanging fruit for us to go after? So for us, that was we didn't say definitively what that should be, but that is things like saying do not use a default universal password make sure if you are manufacturing hundreds of thousands of these smart speakers or smart doorbells or whatever it is that you have a policy in place and a process in place to issue software updates and to issue security patches to that device again this sounds extremely basic it is but it's something that some companies are not doing and so putting that in that First recommendation, that minimum baseline, uh, was one thing we consistently heard from companies and from regulators and others would be really important to drive um, some change here. Another uh, component of this is to then set a second tier uh, of standards above that minimum baseline. So once that mandated baseline regulated by the government is in place, how can the government work with industry to come up with uh, a set of standards above that that are incentivized, that are um, you know, something the government can motivate companies to do through tax incentives or procurement requirements or, or other mechanisms. Um, but again, the, the idea being you don't want to set a baseline and then leave it there, right? Because that becomes, uh, you know, right? There's, there's some people who say the floor becomes the ceiling, right? If a company says, hey, all I have to do is not use one, two, three, four, five and do some encryption, then that's all I'm going to do, right? So right. the idea of having the two tiers is, okay, you know, over time as companies, everyone does the first tier, you start shifting the goalposts, we gradually keep moving towards better and better security as the threats evolve. And then the third piece that we talked about was international coordination. Um, and this is back to what you had opened with. You have a bunch of countries doing a lot of really great stuff, but it doesn't necessarily mesh together well. Um, and it's also sometimes not stated if one country recognizes another country's approach, right? The UK has a new IoT security bill, but has the UK government come out and formally talked about how it sees Australia's emerging approach fitting in with that or Singapore's? No, right? So having governments have that conversation, um, you know, makes sure that vendors know what they do and do not need to do. It also makes sure that countries who are doing the leadership work on this are aligned in, in what they're pushing for. Is this though an achievable goal 
when nations, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to say that the United States was above this, uh, right? Um, but per perhaps maybe to a lesser degree or a more constrained degree, um, you know, pumping out both software as well as hardware that phones home uh, all the time and reports um, what it's doing and wherever it is, creating vulnerabilities. And I mean, we're having this public debate uh, at a time, uh, Justin, when the Pentagon itself is moving to a more sort of cloud combat, um, you know, joint all domain command and control environment where, uh, you know, you're effectively creating a military internet of things, right? W what are, you know, is this an achievable goal on the commercial side of things when you're just going to have so many products um, connecting? I mean, it, it, you know, is it, is there a way to get to some nirvana here or is that too optimistic or, or are there uh, existing examples of how, you know, we, we have managed to do something like this and with the Chinese and the Russians managed to have a degree uh, of, of security in doing it? It's a good question. I think if I said we were going to reach security nirvana, um, probably by law, I should not be allowed back on this podcast. Um <laughs> But I think we, I mean, right, this is one of these, like, I think we can do better. The administration is focused a lot on IoT security. There was already uh, some executive action around this. And as you said, for all that, some parts of the DoD, for example, are shoving for more IoT and cloud and AI and all the buzzwords, there are folks saying, okay, well, this is going to create or change different risks and we need to think about how to mitigate them. Um, all to say, uh, I think, you know, some of this is very aspirational, like having a well-coordinated international uh, IoT security regime. At the same time, I think some of this stuff is lower lift, like U.S. standards body or like a standards agency, NIST, saying, hey, we do or do not recognize this other country's certification scheme, or here's what we think about this other country's certification scheme, right? Because unifying across jurisdictions make, makes it clear to companies um, and to people watching the bottom line that they really need to, uh, you know, follow those those guidelines. Uh, in the U.S. in the U.S. case specifically, I think it's the same thing I've I've think as we've talked about here before, which is that anytime you introduce regulation, you're going to increase the costs on a business probably. And you probably are going to raise the barrier to entry into that market. Um, that is something that should be talked about, right? That's part of the policy discussion. But sometimes companies and some others like to say, oh, well, that would increase the cost to enter the market. And that inherently is not a reason not to do something, right? Like that is actually the point is that if you want to sell an IoT device that's more secure, you can't just walk off the street and start selling smart speakers. You actually have to set up the right processes right. and technology actions to make sure it's secure. So all to say, I think the U.S. government still, including the DOD, needs to be much more um, forward thinking in the amount of incentives they place on industry to do better with security. We've seen many times government regulations on tech go badly. We've also seen how letting industry do what it wants and leaving it up to quote unquote the market has produced this systemic security failure that we all detail in this study and that a gazillion other studies have, have detailed. So 
Um, you know, when you talk about something like DOD doing more IoT, I would hope the DOD is also willing to set up and enforce, um, you know, much stronger cybersecurity in all of its federal acquisition procurement uh, regulations. Um, so they make sure that you're not putting things on the battlefield or, or even in the Pentagon building that are, are fundamentally insecure. Um, I, uh, I, I uh, liked your uh, point that, you know, a gazillion studies have pointed this out. But I mean, you know, d- despite that, um, right, uh, there still is a very love-hate relationship the United States has, uh, and depending on which party is in power, uh, with the nature of regulation and how to regulate. But there is an emerging consensus that this is an important issue, just like it's important to have, um, you know, better uh regulation now on social media companies given the power that they wield and i know that that's uh an an issue that's actually getting some bipartisan traction uh Mm -hmm. that hey we we need to do something differently and that the laws that passed in 1996 may be obe now if congress wanted to lead um justin how does it lead on on this issue right i mean because one of the greatest things about the internet was that it was the next you know designed to connect people security was not a premier uh, element uh, in that. And and we haltingly keep moving to it. What what do the cores of legislation need to be? And the United States is usually at its finest when it actually leads efforts like this on a global basis, right? I mean, why did the Chinese try to get into IEEE and a number of other uh, standard setting organizations so that it can actually shape things to its interests? Talk to us on the congressional side and then on the national side, how the United States has to lead this discussion. On the congressional side, uh, we had the IOT, an IoT Cybersecurity uh, Act uh, a couple of years ago um, now that actually catalyzed some of NIST's great work on IoT security specifically in the last couple of years. So that was a good thing. At the same time, it exposed uh, a continual problem in our, uh, you know, country in general, which is that the bill was watered down by industry before it actually got passed. And so, um, again, that's not to say you shouldn't have industry input, like you very much should have industry input, but, um, you know, a lot of the time it ends up uh, being that big companies complain that uh, it'll, uh, you know, impose costs on them. And then uh, they didn't care about small competitors before, but now all of a sudden we're concerned about shutting out small competitors. Um, and so the actual uh, stuff in the bill was, was weaker as a result of that. Um, you know, so, so all to say more action like that would be good. I think the challenge uh, in our system is getting that through without substantial uh, cuts and carve outs. As for the national side, um, you know, the U.S. government in general uh, is wise, I think, to not, and we don't, we don't talk as much about this in the report, but is wise to not uh, get involved in standard setting in the ways that the Chinese government is doing it, um, right, which is very government-led. Uh, there's a lot of, of um, things that Chinese companies do that have nothing to do with what Beijing says. They just submit standards, but a lot of it is also coordinated Um, And it's good that we don't do that, right? Like there's lots of the internet, right? And many other things have grown because of of government investment, but also because of industry participation and the US government stepping back a bit. And so that's a good thing. Um, 
At the same time, I do think, as I said, some of the standards agencies can do more work with one another, like NIST, uh, you know, thinking about recognition of other countries' IoT security approaches. Um, you know, and NIST has an interesting challenge, I think, right, which is that, you know, they do a lot of great work. They're by far and away one of the most technically knowledgeable and skilled agencies in the entire government. Um, the NIST cybersecurity framework is used globally. It's very influential, right? Lots of standards are based off of it. At the same time, the NIST cybersecurity framework is huge. And people have to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, just to even understand what it is that the framework is saying or doing. And so I think that's actually one challenge for us as we engage globally. And we do talk about this a bit in the paper is that approaching a small IoT manufacturer with a massive document on what they need to do is not exactly the most right. helpful. Um, you know, you could argue they shouldn't be in business unless they understand that. And some people do argue that, but, uh, you know, but for our purposes, like we'd said, that's a great thing to have, but as the baseline, you need to talk to some of these companies with less capacity in plain English or whatever their language is. And so saying things like don't use a default password is much more helpful than right. a 17 point to diagram, which is great, but not helpful in that case on, you know, managing systemic supply chain risk or something like that. Well, I mean, un unfortunately, right. I mean, one of the ways we got ourselves into this pickle was that for the longest time, and, and, and it's, it's very, very legitimate, right? We, we didn't want to necessarily impose costs on industry. We kept saying that it was particularly important on mom and pop places, but in the defense ecosystem in particular, it's some of these smaller companies that are privy to secrets that then get targeted and have underinvested in their security. And we have ended up compromising some of our capabilities. By the way, that's also happened on the prime contractor level as well, right? Where um, the, you know, there are vulnerabilities that have gone unaddressed, right? I mean, so what we're trying to do is raise standards for everybody in a reasonable fashion, uh, because I mean, there is cost associated with you know, colonial pipeline going down because they underinvested, for example, in their fundamental uh, uh, security. Um, just uh, two uh, two questions because I have to ask you about Edward uh, Snowden. Uh, given that Vladimir Putin this week extended uh, citizenship uh, to somebody who, in the United States and some other countries around the world, is um, considered traitorous or treasonous, um, do do any of our allies and partners have sort of a good approach worth emulating. You, you mentioned the UK a couple of times in this conversation uh, and how Australia and other Commonwealth nation uh, has, has picked it up and, and, and the UK has been very, very savvy, uh, obviously because of its intelligence capabilities, cyber capabilities and electromagnetic capabilities. What are, what are the systems out there that the United States ought to be looking at particularly closely as it navigates its uh, approach? I think the approaches to labeling in other countries are really interesting. Um, not so much because it's something the US doesn't understand necessarily, but just it's not something we've done here in the way that, for example, Singapore has done it. Um, right. So looking at, okay, you know, again, different country, different tech ecosystem, et cetera, but looking at Singapore and saying, hey, they actually set up multiple tiers of security. They said, here's the process to certify yourself at this tier to label your product as certified to that tier, right? So looking at the lessons from what they've done, I think uh, is, is really uh, useful. Um, Australia is an interesting case because it's very early days over there. As I mentioned, they're 
IoT strategy document, which is one of the few things they've put out on this, has a lot of stuff that's mimicking what the UK is doing. Um, and the, you know, the UK uh, looking to the Etsy standard, the, the European standard org standard on no default passwords, stuff like that, as I mentioned, is a great example of a government doing something that starts with the basics that, yeah, sure, can build to something much more comprehensive and we need that, but, you know, says, okay, let's, let's walk before we run. And, and finally, what does uh, Vladimir Putin's extension of citizenship to Edward Snowden ultimately really mean, right? I mean, he's been living in Russia uh, since he ran uh, from the United States. Uh, disclosing just an absolute treasure trove of documents. The administration, uh, you know, Obama administration at the time um, was struggling to stay ahead of the story on some of the most classified capabilities the United States had. Uh, very big black eye. Uh, I know that Admiral Michael Rogers still carries scars, uh, and so does Chris Inglis, by the way, who was uh, Admiral Rogers' deputy at the NSA. Um, you know, what, what, is, what does this move ultimately mean and how does the United States respond, if at all, to it? Putin has been uh, ringing the we took Snowden bell since uh, Snowden went to Russia, essentially. Um, right. I mean, as listeners will probably remember, there was uh, after Snowden got there, a whole uh, charade of a situation where they paraded him out in front of journalists and there was all this kind of propagandistic um fervor going on and you know uh, just to com- uh, without commenting on the get or getting into the the whole uh leak situation vis-a-vis the u.s the leaks in rush the leaks uh that snowden made were seen by putin i think both as an opportunity an opportunity to criticize the u.s an opportunity to criticize the internet and surveillance um but also as confirmation of this very genuine, very paranoid Kremlin belief that uh, the U.S. uses the internet to influence uh, the world and project power. Um, of course, that sentence literally is true in some sense, but but you know the Russian government sees that in this uh, completely blown, blown out of proportion and conspiratorial way. So. All to say, every now and then, Putin will make reference to Snowden, will make reference to the leaks, will make reference to U.S. spying um, as a way of bashing the U.S. and saying, hey, Russia took in this dissenter and, you know, pretending to prop up this absurd notion of protecting asylum seekers. Um, all to say, what does it mean? Uh, I'm not really sure what it means. It's, it's uh, you know, not really at the top of the list uh, to me right now when there's uh, nuclear threats going on and the war in Ukraine continuing. Um, You know, for what it's worth, the state news agency said that Edward Snowden would not be subject to uh, any drafting into the war, uh, apparently because he does not have that experience. Um, Never mind that the Russians are taking, uh, the Russian government is taking plenty of people who don't have experience and forcing them to go fight. Um, you know, with a gun to their head, literally, in, in many cases, um, you know, but but now Snowden is a Russian citizen. So that's that's kind of an interesting development. There was no way the Russians were going to be giving him up. Uh, and if they did, then the price would be a very, very high one uh, that I'm not necessarily sure the United States at this point would be would be, you know, eager to pay. 
so it certainly will be uh, is is very interesting. Justin, thanks very much. Always a pleasure uh, having you on the program, and already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.